going to tell you a story. Before we, before we get into the podcast, I'm going to tell you a story. I was in college. I was a college boy. And this was in about the year 1980 or so. I don't remember exactly the year. I was in a, as a member of a band, and we went to a area flea market about an hour away from where I went to college. And while we were there, I started, you know, I'm a pretty gregarious guy. I end up talking to everybody in sight like they're my best friends. I just one of these guys who, when I'm in the mood to talk, I just blabber away. And I was talking to this guy, just this random guy. He was a big, heavy set man. I'd put him in his 40s, somewhere around there. Uh, dark hair. Uh, big, 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 strong man. I mean, I mean, big. And he was a stout man. He was a, a heavy man. And he had a couple dogs with him. And I just commented to him, to, you know, how well behaved his dogs were. And how I thought that was really cool. Now, let me explain this. This flea market that we were at is one that was, frankly, at the time, notorious for being where you could buy anything. And I'm telling you, I've seen, I saw back in the, in the day when we went to these flea markets and before Uncle Sugar really cracked down on what was going on at these flea markets, you could literally buy anything at one of these flea markets. They were called, actually they were called dog and gun sales. You sold firearms, you sold hunting dogs. Uh, there were, I mean, it was a three-day event in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. And what I mean in the middle of nowhere, the nearest town to there has 85 people, and it's not in that town. It's not even five miles from that town. I mean, this is the middle of nowhere in a, in a county that has less than 4,000 population. And there would be twenty to 25,000 people camping out and visiting this flea market. Okay, I met this man. And we were there to actually buy some components to put together for some speakers for our band. We were broke college kids. And I talked to him, and and I really kind of forgot about it until later. But I remember one thing. I don't remember the man's name. I don't remember, you know, we didn't get, you know, we didn't share uh, phone numbers or anything like, I mean, you know, come on. And But I did remember when I you know, we parted ways pleasantly and I had two or three people ask me, hey, you talked to him, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you didn't make him mad, did you? And I'm like, no, I don't generally make people who I've talked to mad, but he's got kind of a temper. Okay, and this is, I totally forgot about it. Absolutely forgot about it. Until oh, about a year and a half ago, when I was rereading a book that I'd read once before, and then it jarred this memory. The book is called In Broad Daylight. 
It's about a man named Ken Rex McElroy. And it's about a town called Skidmore, Missouri, which is in North Missouri. It's in Northwest Missouri. We're in North Missouri, more the central part of the state. And the book is about Ken Rex McElroy was shot to death. His wife being, he was in a pickup truck in the middle of town in broad daylight, which is where the book name came from. And there were 40, 50 town people around, which half the people in this town were in surrounding the vehicle. And he was shot to death in a fusillade of bullets. His wife, somebody ran to the truck, opened up the passenger side of the door and pulled her out and dragged her away as the the truck was being pummeled by bullets from three different rifles. Okay, people get murdered every day. What makes this so different? Well, the people of the town of Skidmore who were there never told what they saw. They didn't tell law enforcement who did it. Everybody hit the deck at the first shot, and nobody saw anything. Nobody saw anything. Now, interestingly, the woman whose name was Trina identified one of her shooters, one of the shooters, said, I saw this man holding a rifle. In fact, it was the son of the man who pulled her out of the truck, was one of the ones that was shooting. She identified him as an eyewitness. And yet there were no indictments given. None. And why was that? Why was that? Never went to trial. Why did that happen? Because he had it coming. And Ken Rex McElroy really did have it coming. There's an excellent book. I highly recommend you listen to it. It's called In Broad Daylight. There was also a made-for-TV movie. Skip that. It's not worth it. In fact, there is a new version of the book, which has been updated for the, I believe it was the 20 or 25-year anniversary of the shooting. Some might call it murder. I would call it the shooting. And in that book, I... As I was rereading the book, I read the original book, but I heard the second one in an audiobook. It dawned on me, hey, wait a minute. Many, many years ago, you remember that one guy you met at Urban Sale? That one big, strong, heavy, black-haired man who everybody was afraid of. Coming to sell heaven only knows what, merchandise, at a place where I know for a fact a lot of stolen merchandise was sold. This man was a thief. He was a rustler. He stole cattle. He stole hogs. He 
was a very bad person. He murdered people. He shot people in cold blood. And he got away with it. He got away with it for years and years and years. And finally, the law was apparently not enough to put him away behind bars after he walked into the store and shot an old man with a shotgun in his own store over a a minor tiff with one of the children. And there were witnesses, and they still let him out. At that point in time, the people of Skidmore, Missouri, got together. They had a meeting, and he came in and broke up the meeting. He came into town and broke up the meeting. And this is a town that had lived in fear of this man for years. And they had had enough. He had it coming. So three of them went, got their guns, and they shot him dead, dead, dead. And they walked. What's the purpose? Why why am I bringing this up? Well, I just want to use this as an example of a personal example of blowback. He had it coming. And Spice is going to take it here for a little bit, and she's going to explain what blowback is. And we're talking about blowback on a personal level. There's there's two kinds. No, not really. There's one kind of blowback. But this is a uh, something that I think is vitally important for all preppers to understand as part of the prepper psych mentality. First, the wiki definition of blowback. It's a term originating from the American intelligence community, denoting unintended consequences, unwanted side effects, or suffered repercussions of a covert operation that fall back on those responsible for the aforementioned operations. To the civilians suffering the blowback of covert operations, the effect typically manifests as random acts of political violence without a discernible direct cause because the public in whose name the intelligence agency acted are unaware of the affected secret attacks that provoked revenge counterattacks against them. Now, we're using a personal version of blowback here for this podcast, which is epitomized by the old saying, that which comes around goes around comes around. When you treat people badly, it eventually comes home to roost on you. That's right. So this podcast is about how to prep to avoid blowback, more or less, in both the day-to-day living sense and in emergency-type situations. In the day-to-day living sense, the appearance of blowback is pretty common. Uh, For example, in the sailing ship era, the Napoleonic era, say 1800s, sailing ships, early 1800s, the most common casualties of uh, battles between ships were the captains and first officers, particularly unliked captains and first officers, And a surprising number of the fatal blows came from somewhere behind their own quarterdeck. (laughs) But, you know, since they're heading into battle and all, what you do with the casualties is you just kick them over the side because you don't want to be tripping on them. The ships are very small, and uh, 
you know, it's dangerous just to leave things lying around. So, whoops, captain's gone down. Funny how that happened. Tip him over the side, and there we go. Pull now, back. a lot of, you have to understand, part of, of what was going on in, the, in that culture is sailors would never talk to officers about what happened. They just wouldn't do it. So if you were a hard horse, and there were some hard horse captains. There were some evil men using there some their evil, evil, almost godlike power. Men. In that, in the Royal Navy and in other navies, so it was not just the British, but it was they. The Brits had their share, and uh, you could end up with, uh, you could end up uh, getting shot accidental a purpose, as they used to say. Yeah, and it was a real thing, and you know it, this is carried through in in a lot of different militaries, and you it's know even up into in like Vietnam, Vietnam they call it, they called it fragging. You know, an officer, a lieutenant who went out and did something stupid and tried to get everybody killed every other uh, patrol. Well, you know, it grenades go off sometimes. They just go off. What can you say? It happens. So, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna go on the international scale of blowback. But I highly recommend you reading read the book Blowback. It's uh, it is eye opening to say the least as to how much the government's secret missions have affected things like 9-11. And I'm not going to go into, we're not, this is not a political thing. It's just history. And some of the stuff we have as a, as a intelligence community member have done, have really bitten us in the tail. And I highly recommend that book. But a lot of the stuff we personally do to other people can as much bite us in the tail. A lot of people seem to think they can hide behind the law, as Ken Rex McElroy hid behind the law. He laughed. A lot of his stolen goods went to some really excellent lawyers, and that's how he got out. It's it's not like the uh, policemen of the counties he lived in had not been busting their hind parts. To throw him in jail forever. They had been. Right. And, but they well, had been unable be, to get it done legally. To be fair, most of the policemen, most of them were afraid of him. Most of them would not take him on. And he ran into one highway patrol officer who wasn't afraid of anybody. And that police officer was the one who, you know, basically was the one who threw him in handcuffs and took him in, and nobody else would do it. And he tried to intimidate that officer. It didn't work. But, you know, there's just so much people are going to take. I, I had a dream. Is this a good time for my dream? Good time for your dream. Okay, I had a dream. This has been a couple, three years ago. And sometimes you come up with great ideas and dreams that just don't work out in real life. And sometimes you come up with dream solutions. Some of the best stuff we've come up with is stuff we dreamed about. You know, we're we're trying to come up with a solution to a problem. And, you know, you go to sleep and your subconscious puts it forward. Well, I had a dream where I was a lawyer. Yeah, I know. Okay, this is not a good dream. I don't, nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> nightmare. I don't want to be a lawyer. And I had a, a client who was a woman who was dealing with an abusive husband who abused her, who abused the children, but none of it was provable. 
and she could not uh she could never get the legal system to take her seriously so i was her lawyer she killed the husband and i was trying to find a way to keep her from going to the electric chair which they don't use in Missouri, but whatever. Um, I was trying to find a way to, to keep her from, from going down for this crime. Because it was absolutely murder. And I've try, I tried everything. Man, I was my cousin Vinny, kind of <laughs> Vinny. You know what I'm saying? I was a Vinny pack of donuts. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was the guy. I was trying every lawyer trick in the book, and nothing was working. It was getting nowhere. The jury were giving me the snake eyes. They were giving me stone cold right in my, right in my eyes. And the judge, he looked like, uh, Fred Herman with the, from the, my cousin video. You know, he's like, got that, you know, Herman Munster thing going on. And I'm just, it's not going anywhere. And finally, I'm just like, well, there's one thing I can try. There's only one thing I've got left. So I turned to the judge, I turned to the jury, my closing arguments, and I said, but the bottom line comes down to only one thing and one thing only. It's just the bottom line. The man had it coming. And there was silence in the, in the, in the courtroom. And everybody's, the judge is looking, looks over at the jury. And the jury, they're looking at each other like in a shocked, what, what? The prosecutor, I turn on the prosecutor, man, and he's got his head in his hands. And the judge says, excuse me, did you just say he had it coming? And I, I looked back at the judge and said, yes, your honor, that's what I said. I'm like, oh, I'm going to prison, man. I'm going, <laughs> I am, this is malpractice. I am going to jail for this. And, and the judge said, you mean to tell me we've been in this courtroom for days and this man had it coming? I'm like, yes, Your Honor. And you didn't think to mention before wasting days of all of our time the most obvious fact that this man had it coming. He had it coming. Yes, Your Honor. He's like, well... Mr. Prosecutor and the prosecutor, I don't know, Your Honor, he had it coming. He turns around and looks at the jury. Jury? And this woman just said, he had it coming. He had it coming. <laughs> All right, case dismissed. Man had it coming. Boom. <laughs> that was the end of the case. It does not actually work that way in real life. There is no he had it coming defense. But there should be. You know, a lot of a lot of the things you hear about, uh, one of our local communities, in fact, has had a real rash. And I don't know what's going on here because it's a very small town. They've had a real rash of of child molestation cases. I'm talking 10 of them in the last couple of years. And this is a very small town. And that's that's like ridiculous. And, you know, if true, these guys have it coming. But that's not how the legal system works. Except if something bad happens to those people. Yeah. Might be that nobody saw anything. Yeah, that's true. It might be. I would say the people of Skidmore had a, he had it coming defense. Absolutely. Because there is a point in time you will reach where you have it coming. If, if you're this type of person, you have it coming. You just do. 
So, first, don't be the kind of guy who has it coming, and that will make you safer as well as well as making the world a better place. By the way, from from a prepper note, though, you can also take this into prepping. I remember, in particular, uh, a few years ago there was some big disaster in California. And everybody started getting on the emergency services personnel because they hadn't done a good job of getting ready for this disaster. And it's California, and it's one of those things that happens in California. I don't remember if it was a drought or if it was a fire or if it was an earthquake, but they mudslide. all happen in California. All, you name it, it'll happen. Yeah. Volcano, mudslide, earthquake, drought. And they might happen all the same day. <laughs> Probably wasn't a tornado because California, but... Could have, any one of them, it was predictable. The emergency services people had done an inadequate job in this particular town of dealing with it. And when they started to take the heat, the first thing they did is started blaming the preppers in the area and calling them selfish because they had, instead of expending their efforts to help make their community a better place and more prepared, they had selfishly spent their time, money, and efforts in just protecting themselves and the the individuals that they cared about. It was a clear and obvious, just an attempt to redirect blame by finding a scapegoat. And the preppers were a handy scapegoat because sometimes misery does love company, and those who are in a better situation can attract the the anger and resentment and frustration of people who are less prepared in an emergency. And one, I thought it was a blatant psych attempt to shift blame. Shameless attempt to shift blame. But I also noticed that it worked to some extent. Because when people are angry and frustrated and they don't have a good target, they'll find a bad target. And people who have more than you have at that point in time make a very tempting target they're not going to buy these perfectly true explanations of yeah when you were buying all this insert expensive junk you didn't really need here i was spending the time and effort building up these resources they're not going to be hearing that because they're going to look for somewhere to put their anger and put their blame and the less well you liked you are in your community, the less well understood you are in your community, the more likely you are to be a target for that. And that, I think, is where a lot of the fear of seizures comes from. If people can find a reason to blame you, they can give themselves excuses for coming and taking your stuff. They just have to dehumanize you. Now, there's a reason that people um, that, that people are dehumanized, and this is part of some of what our government does to people as a matter of course in certain situations. They, they have to dehumanize you. They have to take away your humanity to get you to comply. Now, this sounds like an extremely political statement, but it's not. It's, in fact, in the training manuals for the military. They must break down the individual to make a soldier, to make a Marine, 
to make a sailor. They can't have the individual put himself before the Corps or the Army or the ship. And the only way to have a cohesive in-group is to have an out-group. If there aren't others outside, then there can't be a cohesive group. And it's not just governments that do this. Every organization under the sun will have a natural and human tendency to form in-groups and out-groups. And this is one of the dividing lines upon which the groups might be built. Right. And, you know, like I said, but there's, 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 there's specific things like the military. And I'm not saying that, that it necessarily isn't something we have to do. I'm just saying this is what, this is part of the, of the way it happens. Another, another example is prisons. Okay. When you go to prison, you become a number. You're not a human anymore. You're, you're a number. And they take away, you know, that's why they cut the hair. The military. That's why they cut the hair. Prison. Cut the hair. That's part of the, you know, part of the process. Uh, removing individuality to enhance group cohesiveness and separate you from others. And it doesn't even have to be. This could be like she said, a private guy, a fraternity is the same way. You know, you, you speak. I don't know how many people I know who've joined fraternities, sororities, and before they were quite individualistic. But after a while, and I'm not, if, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying don't join a fraternity. Don't join a sorority. What I'm saying is, you know, but people change. When they become sorority and fraternity members in college, it changes who they are. It changes their outlook. It changes a lot about them. And they just become, they become interested in different things. And there is a socialization process because this is the way that Sigma whoever does it. You know, that's just the way, that's the Sigma way. You know, that's the whatever organization way. They're making better bonds within the group by creating a group identity. So, and there's nothing really wrong with that, but that does lead you open to both exploitation and exploiting others. It leaves you... uh, it gives you the. It puts another us and them out there. The for dark us to side deal with. of the group identity is that it lets you treat others as less than fully human. And, and you see this, and, and and dehumanizing others. You know that's one of the things that uh, that you see that they use on police shows. That's real. A lot of the stuff that you see on police shows is just baloney. I've never been a cop, but I I have been in a profession that deals with police. Frankly, I'm just going to come out and say it. You know, I've been in one way or another a journalist for 35 years, um, and I've, you know, my when I went to school, I went to school to be a journalist for uh, criminal law. I, I, my, I have a a uh, undeclared minor in. Um, criminal justice. That's just what I did. It was my interest in school was was journalism of crime. And so I've been, I've been dealing professionally with police officers for 35 years. And so I kind of get an idea of what people, uh, what of the, the Hollywood stuff is actually real and what if it's just complete nonsense. And one of the things I've noticed that is actually real is the breaking down. That's the, that, that's what they, 
you know, that's what they try to do. That's part of it. That's it's a it's intentional. And it's not bad necessarily. It's just part of the way that we're wired. And so. who do you think is go, is most likely to be the scapegoat in such a situation? Is it going to be the people who have ties to their community and you know positive relations with members of their community, or is it some guy who's been Somebody you didn't want in your community the whole time, and now you look around and he's got stuff you don't have. You want his stuff, but you don't want to feel like you're evil. But But he's not like you, and you remember how he has separated himself from you for a long time by his behavior. You're setting yourself up to attract blowback. Yes, you are. Whether it's deserved or not doesn't matter. Um, obviously, you, there are things you can do to become that. You know, if you're going to be the, the the village jerk, yeah, you're not going to last long if the stuff hits the fan. You're going to be the first one that uh, goes over the railing. <laughs> On a related note, that expression about don't kill the messenger that everybody bandies about so casually... It's real. The reason that became a thing is because habitually they have killed the messengers. I mean, the Roman emperors were pretty outright about it. They would just kill messengers who brought them news they didn't like. And that was pretty straightforward. But much more often, it's people who bring news of unwanted events, especially if they do it in a non-empathetic I saw this coming, and you didn't see it coming, and now you're stuck by it. Don't you wish you'd been more like me? I call it this. It becomes it tempting to shoot the messenger, frankly. I call this Sohania. Like, so, <laughs> yeah. Anytime you go, well, I saw this, you didn't, so, yeah. Anytime you have that Sohania thing going on, you probably just made a really bad mistake. <laughs> if you ever hear that coming out of your mouth, yeah, that was probably not a good... There will be payback for that, because there will be blowback. Blowback, you can generate so much blowback, and you'll have it coming if you do this kind of stuff. Even if you're right, even if it doesn't have nothing to do with you, there will be consequences to your action. There will be payback. There will be blowback. So don't be that person. And for those of you who have been laughed at for prepping in the past, and all of us have kept caught some sort of heat, either laughed at for prepping or been looked down upon because we don't have the same kinds of stuff that we would have if we weren't spending the the resources on that. Everybody's caught some heat for it who's done a serious amount of prepping, I would expect. I can see where it would be really tempting to point out that yours was the wiser way when the time comes, but that's just a blowback magnet. That's there's right. Being right, and then there's being right and loud, and one of those is not a great idea. No, because you're like, oh, I look at I got those. Well, fine, I'll shoot you and take your stuff. Well, problem solved. <laughs> you know, seriously. And getting back to uh, the police thing, and one of the things that is not realistic is CSI is a TV show. Okay, just to be perfectly clear about this, it's a really fun C- uh, TV show. And CIS, it's a TV show. Even the Mounties didn't always actually get their man. Yeah. Don't always they they don't really man. do this in real life. Okay. Yes, there are CSIs. 
And yes, the police do investigate to the limit of what they can do. But I'm here to tell you, this whole spending five weeks finding a fiber in the trunk is, at best of times, ridiculous. And at worst, and I'm not encouraging people to go out and kill somebody, be, oh, yeah, I can get away with it. No, that's not what I mean, is if you are put yourself in a situation where you are the person that uh, nobody likes, nobody's going to bust their butt keeping you safe, you know, but you. Nobody's going to, you know, if somebody turns you into the next Ken Rex McElroy, you know, nobody's going to speak up. Not that it'll really matter to you, but, you know, you're, you're the person who puts you six feet under is not going to go to jail if you make yourself into Ken Rex McElroy because he had it coming. And he really did. Anything else to add? I hope that none of our audience out there is the kind of people that Ken Rex McElroy was. Oh, he was, he no, was just I, he was just evil, flatly evil. And it's not a word to steal a line from the from the TV show Joan of Arcadia, um, which is a great line though. Um, and uh, we're not talking about religion; we're talking about a TV show. So. Uh, the guy who was portraying God in Joan of Arcadia came up with this. He said, um, you know, he is evil, and that's not a word I throw around lightly. And so I kind of take that. That evil is not a word I throw around lightly. It's not something you hear coming out of my mouth very often. But that man was evil. And anybody who's truly evil really does have it coming, as far as I'm concerned. So doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Frankly, if that was all this this podcast was about, I wouldn't have bothered. Yeah. Because one, I hope none of our audience fits in that category, and two, if it did, well, then you had it coming. <laughs> and uh, on your own head, be it. In that case, but the the real reason that I was interested in doing this was. To help raise awareness about the ways in which someone who is, you know, is prepped and is right can become a target of redirected anger and have the same kinds of, be treated in the same kinds of ways. Because in people's minds, if they have anger they need to get rid of, and you're the natural target for it, and you've got stuff they feel they really need, and they don't want to feel evil themselves for taking it from you. One of the ways human psychology is set up to deal with this situation is to find ways to redirect the blame onto the person who's got what you really need that gives the the takers the moral excuse in their own mind to do it, that is what I'm really concerned about. And the reason I wanted to bring up in this podcast is don't set yourself up for blowback, even if you're right, even if it wasn't because you were being evil, even if all you did was be right just a little too loudly. I wouldn't wish that upon you. Okay, now that's just cool. There's three or four Special ops. We're driving past Hurlbut. 
uh, Air Force Base. It's three or four special ops helicopters taking off for some training. And that's just cool. We're just driving past, right past the end of the runway on 98, if you've ever been down the rear. That's just cool. It's also cool to drive over here to, to, uh, the other side of the island and, and, uh, watch the, uh, F-22s and F-35s take off over your head. It's pretty cool. He kind of never found, Salty never found a military jet he didn't like pretty much, so. Yeah, except for the B-1B, the Lancer, the Bone. Man, those things are loud. I'm not sure I ever gained more warmth from one statement than when we were bicycling uh, down a trail in the middle of nowhere and we got buzzed by a couple of military jets. And I looked at him and asked, what are two FA-18s doing way out here? <laughs> yes, I'm like, I love this woman. <laughs> she knows that it's an FA-18. Not a Super Hornet, but an FA-18. What is, yeah, and where we live, you don't see a lot of F-18s. You really don't, because we're not around a Navy base. We're around, you see a lot of warthogs, a whole lot of warthogs. You'll see the, you'll see the B, B-2 quite a bit. The warthog drivers love it when they come in for a fake strafing run yeah. and you fake die for them as they buzz you when you're riding down the trail. We see B-2s a lot. We're not too far off the flight path for uh, uh, the base they're out of. Okay, but getting back to the getting back to the podcast point, uh, two things to my two takeaways is um, one of the things that I think is really important for preppers to be is... Uh, OPSEC, uh, paying attention to it. You know, don't be that guy that's bragging about, you know, well, I saw this coming miles away and I got four years worth of food in my basement. That's a bad idea. So, and the other thing, in Paradise Prepper did a, uh, a, uh, a column on each of these things. So I fired you to go to PF. 3BY and check it out. The other thing you might want to consider is looking at the different things of becoming a gray man or gray woman. Somebody just nobody pays attention to at all. Just somebody who's rather transparent. It's not that you're good. It's not that you're bad. It's just nobody knows you're even there. It's just a very good way to be when you're prepping. You know, you don't want to draw attention to yourself ever. So if you if you do this, you're not going to be the type of person who's going to have problems with blowback. So you might want to look those up and and maybe think about, you know, what kind of prepper role am I looking to be for myself? What am I trying to be? Well, that gray man role is a really attractive option. You know, I don't want to be the mall ninja guy who's always bragging about all the cool tactical cool stuff he's got on his AR-15. You know, the fact that he goes to the gym so he can whip around that 28-pound rifle, you know, because he's got every flashlight and laser under the sun on it. Here's a hint. If your AR-15 weighs more than 9 pounds, you're doing something wrong. Just a thought. Um, if it weighs more than 8 pounds, maybe you ought to start thinking about uh, what you could cut back on. Just a thought. Just throwing that out there. That's all I'm saying. Anything else from you? Or are you good? Nope. All Said right. what I wanted to say. We're going to hang this one up. So uh, from right now, we are in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, right outside of Eglin Air Force Base, my old hometown. I lived here once. And we'll talk to you later.